From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the All Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian, and today we've got a very different and very special show for you that goes beyond air power, but brings together our entire team for a mid-year update on the big stories of the year on all their beats and what to expect through the end of the year. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell's sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Joining us today, aside from JJ, are our contributing editors, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, who host our Cavus Ships podcast that clears the fog on naval and maritime matters, and our contributing editor, Laura Winter, the host of The Downlink, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome to the program and hope everybody had a terrific Independence Day holiday. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Everybody, uh, like I said, welcome back. It's terrific having everybody aboard, but we're going to discuss news very briefly on air power. JJ, start us off because you've actually got some breaking news on the world's biggest defense program ever, the F-35, on a topic that you have been following very closely on the Air Power podcast. Well, Vago, on this week's Sunday business report, there was a lot of discussion of the role Rheinmetall is increasingly playing in U.S. defense. Well, that role appears to be getting bigger now with the announcement that Rheinmetall will be the new auxiliary provider of center fuselage sections for the F-35, augmenting Northrop Grumman and replacing what had been a Turkish role in the program. And this is dramatic because one of the biggest production limiting factors on this program has been the center fuselage. We've been wondering for ages why they were limiting production at 156 when the demand has gone out of sight. You could easily build 175 to 180 F-35s per year just to meet the existing orders, and they keep growing. Even this week, Israel has come up with an order for 25 more jets. So getting past that limitation, which it turned out was Northrop Grumman's ability to produce center fuselages, means the program can move ahead more rapidly. And any uh, sense how long it's going to take for them to come online? I mean, obviously, it takes time, especially when you're certifying and bringing a new producer online, even somebody as qualified as Ryan Mittal to do it. Do we have any uh, sense how long it's going to take to get them uh, into full swing? The announcement that came out of Europe yesterday was that that process has now been completed. The F-35 Joint Program Office has been trying to certify replacements for the Turkish elements that were taken out of the program for a year and a half now, at least. And they have finally apparently accomplished that with Rheinmetall with regard to center fuselages. They've built a big new facility, and that's going to come online very quickly. Absolutely fascinating. And we will uh, be tracking that. And for anybody who's been paying attention, Rheinmetall uh, and General Dynamics Land Systems were both uh, selected as the optionally manned fighting vehicle, which is the United States Army's Bradley replacement. See, we can talk air power, but we can also talk ground power, sea power, as well as space power on this podcast. Kavis, uh, let me go to you, because if I said Chris, both of you would look up. Give us a sense on what sort of the big stories uh, that you guys have been tracking on the Kavis Ships podcast on a weekly basis. Domestically in the U.S., the big story really has been the, sh the shipbuilding program, the amphibious ships. 
and the confusion and cross signals and general overall peak from Congress at the, uh, at the progress of the Navy's amphibious ship programs, in particular, further procurement of the LPD-17 Flight 2 San Antonio class amphibious transports. It's a, it's a hot production line. It's been going for two decades now. Uh, they've just gone to a new variant. And there's this so-called pause that came in last year, but this continues. And con Congress, in, all, in every hearing this year, from both houses, uh, all four committees, and both sides of the aisle, um, you get a general frustration at the Navy and the Marine Corps for not ordering more ships. The Marines have said that quite adamantly that they want more. Um, Navy keeps trying to come up with excuses. And of course, the real problem is that, and all sources point behind the scenes, to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, as being the, the arbiter of this, stemming from the dicta that um, if it doesn't contribute to a high-end fight or deterrence with China over Taiwan, then it can probably slide in the budget. But didn't the Marine Corps Commandant, though, complicate this when early on in his commandancy, he said that we need far fewer of the big ships, we need the light amphibious warship, we need more distributed operations. And that easing off of amphibious ships aviation and other sort of long-time priorities. I mean, isn't that something that caused perturbation in, in the system and got people to say, look, I mean, if the Marines don't really want as many of them, that story changed a little bit, but is that a contributing factor to this? Um, so the Force Design 2030 program by uh, Commandant Berger is de-emphasizing the, the Marine Corps' traditional reliance on big deck amphibs. That was not necessarily intended as a, as a we want to buy fewer amphibs argument, but it did provide an opening for the opponents of the program led by, as far as I can tell, all sources, all sources point to DepSecDef Hicks uh, to walk into this. So it's, it's more of like somebody was crossing the street and then somebody said, look, let's go hit that or something like a target came in front of your sights. I don't think I don't think it led it at all. I think it, it did provide an opening and an opportunity. The Marine Corps, for their part, since this has begun, has been incredibly adamant in all four uh, forums in saying that they still want 31 big deck amphibs, 31 big amphibs, and the requirement remains 38. They've been adamant about that and haven't backed off that at all. And that was the number one topic in all four uh, Navy Marine Corps Department of the Navy posture hearings. Right. this year. And it was universal across the board in, from Congress in terms of being opposed to this idea. It has uh, not been articulated well. I think it's a shame that the Pentagon leadership has not come out. They should be the ones testifying. And right. they're, sort of, they're, they're, they're sort of putting the Navy leadership out to hang, to hang, hang in the air here on it um, and not backing them up. It's not, I don't believe it's coming from the, head, from the Department of the Navy. It's coming from DOD. And DOD is not pointed up on this, and it's making everybody look pretty poor. In any case, uh, so this is something we're, you know, we are following. Right. Um, Congress is putting money in for the, the LPD-33, is the, the whole number of the ship, but question at the moment. I, I think there's little question they're going to build that, but they've already paused it long enough so that the ship is probably going to cost more because of this pause, right. and nominally in the name of looking for uh, cost savings. It's not doing that at all. The, Quite the opposite. But that's a that's an ongoing situation. It's made everybody look bad. It's certainly not been a good story. It's not over yet either. Internationally, I think the the real story overwhelmingly is the continued heightened level of activity in the Western Pacific. 
the Chinese Navy in particular, the Chinese military and the Russians have become far more aggressive, continue to be far more aggressive in their activities in and around the island nations of Taiwan and Japan. And uh, just been very provocative behavior, very high level of activity, lots of aircraft, lots of ships. The Chinese have gone out of their way to circle the Japanese home islands with the formation of warships. Even, even recently, a, an American ship did another Taiwan Strait Passage, which is something that the um, U.S. Navy or Coast Guard does roughly every month or three. And a Coast Guard cutter went through, and the very next day, uh, for the first time in quite a while, uh, one of the Chinese aircraft carriers and a task group went through. That was a planned operation. It wasn't directly in response to that cutter going through. But it, it still it just points to the heightened level of activity. Uh, in response, multinational bilateral and multinational exercises have definitely been on the up, upswing. A major element of all those exercises now, one of the very first things they do, is a big photo exercise to show everybody gathered together. That used to be one of the last things you did when you had a multi-day exercise. Now it's the very first thing. The messaging is, is really uh, obvious. Um, the Navy, the U.S. Navy has increased the public appearance of submarines on deployment, um, showing up and making many more foreign port calls than they ever did before. The silent service is not being quite as silent as their, as their previous habit has been. And um, European navies are becoming routinely more engaged in the Western Pacific. Obviously, the, uh, the, the British sent over um, the carrier Queen Elizabeth Strike Group for a one-off deployment in 2021, that's not something they can maintain. The, but European ships are now routinely deploying to the West Pacific. At the moment, there's a French frigate and an Italian frigate that are operating in the Western Pacific, exercising with a lot of countries that they don't usually exercise with, visiting places they haven't been in a long time, especially the Italians. It's been more than a quarter century since the Italians have been to Japan, for example, right. they just visited there. The level of activity is just far higher than it was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and shows no sign of abating. I was just citing the comments made by the Marine Corps leadership, really backing off the big and and following the internal debate about that. But um, I, I certainly hope they get as many of those ships because they are really incredibly useful. And the hull form could be used for any one of a number, broad number of missions. As many years ago, former uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work uh, wanted to do. Cervello, did you uh, want to dive in and any ad you wanted to make before we go to the space and air portions of the discussion? I think the only thing that I would add is, you know, for the last year or so, the Navy has been, and folks that follow the Navy like us, have been operating under the assumption that Lisa Franchetti would be the next Chief of Naval Operations. She's the current Vice Chief of Naval Operations now, and reporting over the last month or so um, seems to contradict that. And by all accounts, Admiral Sam Paparo, who is the current Pacific right. Fleet Commander, looks like he will be the next Chief of Naval Operations and, and aviator by trade. Um, so that, along with what Chris just described, are I think would be the three big stories of the last six months for the Navy. Uh, and I should point out, right, that this idea was from the Indo-Pacific Commander, Lung Aquilino, an F-14 driver, you know, that the importance of having a naval aviator in that job to shepherd the FAXX future fighter program uh, over the finish line. And a word from our sponsors, City National Bank offers the best of both worlds. Their clients benefit from personalized attention and flexible solutions without sacrificing access to the global scale, support, and resources needed to grow in the defense and aerospace industry. Your success is their business. 
Learn more at cnb.com forward slash aerospace dash defense. Laura, you know, it's been an extremely busy year in space uh, so far. A lot of folks are looking at uh, Ukraine as, as a real space war uh, in terms of all the kinds of assets that are being employed, whether through Starlink or anything else. From your standpoint, what are what are sort of the big two stories that you've been tracking over the course of the year? Well, obviously, just like you said, uh, space's role in the conflict in Ukraine is massive, and, and that's been well covered. But what I think folks don't really understand or get that perhaps really even bigger than that, the number one most important development in the past six months in space and defense is very recent and off the presses. It's India's signing of the Artemis Accords. It's a move that shows that the U.S. has convinced not only a major spacefaring nation, but the leading nation of the non-aligned movement, that it's its best play for the the long game in space is to join team democracy. The Accords are a U.S. initiative that's been shepherded by NASA and the U.S. State Department, and the Accords are intended to create a grand partnership in the space domain for exploration and exploitation of the moon and Mars and even beyond. So it's you know it feels kind of squishy. But there's a lot more happening. There will be alignment on space behavior, yes, for commerce, but it also will include defense because it's building a technical engineering foundation that the accords require all those who sign up a commitment to interoperability. And that means being able to utilize each other's in-space fuel storage, launch systems, landing structures, communication systems, and power systems for exploration and commerce. Again, sounds really squishy, but space technology is always dual use. So whatever you develop for space for, quote, you know, exploration and commerce, it will always come into defense. So also um, the day that India signed the Artemis Accords, which really underscores this, at the Willard Hotel, which is about five blocks away from where the Department of Defense India's Ministry of Defense, along with the U.S.-India Business Council, they held a summit with small and medium-sized defense businesses, and I went there, and about 80% of the folks in the room of the businesses on hand were space businesses, and out of them, most of them were Indian, and they wanted defense contracts here in the United States, if not directly with the U.S. Department of Defense, then indirectly with U.S. space companies that had contracts with the Department of Defense. The U.S. military attache to Delhi was there. There were ambassadors there, and all of this has also been underscored by the recent Department of State's policy on space. And it points out repeatedly that the reason that they've written this new space policy is for national security, that they see national security as a number one challenge that has prompted them to, to write a space policy. It's also their number two priority. So I see that as really the big story but it's a story that's going to keep on giving because this is a long-term game that will also have effects in the Indo-Pacific region for sure. The other big story that I think is going to be increasingly important, especially as we still have an inv you know inverted yield curve, which is you know in business that short-term uh, borrowing you know costs 
or well, you'll get a higher percentage rate of return and and stuff like that as opposed to long-term borrowing. It's the banking, it's the money, it's the Silicon Valley bank situation. We're in some really weird territory with the markets and with capital markets. And it's the capital markets that invest in these small to medium-sized companies that eventually become things like SpaceX. And no one's really figured it out because everyone's still banking or the you know venture capitalists are still banking with the same single one bank, which failed earlier this year. No one's come up with an alternative. There's not like an alternative bank out there that actually services this community, which plays so heavily in defense. So those are the two biggest stories. Uh, to answer the question of you know what I'm watching, what I'm seeing, what I'm keeping my eyes on is how the Space Force is shifting its stance into more of a war fighting stance. And this has been seen time and again since early this year with the you know first uh, hearings with Chan Saltzman and the rest of the Department of the Air Force gang up on the hill. What they're basically talking about is having you know weapons on orbit, you know, being able to not just sort of, hey, take a hit, but you know, maybe we should figure out a way to actually defend our on orbit satellites to actually make a more clear deterrence up there. And that's opposed to being, you know, what was said in 2002 all over the place, which is basically that Space Force was a support service or what I'd like to call Verizon above the horizon. But now there's a real push to talk about warfighting capabilities, not just being a support service that connects your calls. So that that's what I see is the big stuff, in addition to obviously what has been happening in Ukraine and that the Ukraine conflict really is the first true space war. Although uh, there were those who would tell you that the 1990-1991 Gulf War was the first uh, space war, which is what uh, the Air Force refers to it as, but certainly they from, do. The ubiquity, from the ubiquity of assets and uh, open source intelligence and and overhead. Uh, I I would agree with you that I think we're we're in a very different spot. We're uh, in a very different spot. Today. And the other thing is is that both nations have access to space assets. See, the thing that happened that the Air Force is referring to. Yeah, they're not wrong. Sure, it was the first time that space assets were really used in a war. These two nations, Russia and Ukraine, have access to space assets, and they're using them either well or poorly. Right. And the Ukrainians are the ones that are actually using them well. They're outgunned, they're outmanned, and they're still kicking ass because they're able to use space like nobody else has ever done before. Uh, and I should also point out, we are also giving them access, uh, and so are all the allies and partners, to the kind of strategic the space capability that we would reserve normally for ourselves. So they're also getting uh, certainly an advantage there. I should also point out that from a market standpoint, the limited access to capital is a problem for a lot of startups across yep. many other fields, not just space, uh, where you know folks will confide in you. As we've had some uh, CEOs of of new companies. Uh, oh tell sure, us, tell us but that. I, I don't argue that whatsoever. Completely agree, and it's not even defense; it's everywhere, right? But, but exactly with space in particular, why raise the problems of liquidity, which the entire defense sector is facing right now, is that the majority of space, small and medium-sized businesses, which is where a lot of the creative activity occurs and where a lot of the, where it requires a lot of venture capital, not family capital, venture capital, right? 
they bank with one bank. That bank failed earlier this year. And they still, this slice of the sector still banks with one bank. Right. That's right. no bueno. Exactly. Although um, that's the reason why we have FDIC rules, you know, in terms of how much is uh, guaranteed in order for you not to put all of your money in one singular bank. Okay, I've got to move on. JJ, uh, walk us through. I mean, we've been covering uh, a number of uh, stories, obviously, on the Air Power podcast, but there are some that are recurring themes. Uh, Walk us through what you think are sort of the top couple of stories that we've been focused on over, over the past year. Well, picking up where Laura was just referring, the war in Ukraine is a huge story for several reasons. One of them is the increasing debate it has engendered on the future of Army aviation and whether helicopters in particular can survive in modern air defense environments. Just like this is the first war where both sides have had big access to space, this is the first time we've seen both sides in a war have fully modern air defense capabilities, and it's keeping both sides from flying. The experience of Ukraine is not encouraging for aviators, so it's not too surprising we see the Army continuing to defer its decision on the future armed reconnaissance aircraft while they figure out the if it flies, it dies conundrum. Although they would tell you that it's because of the delay in the engine and Army aviators are always very quick to point out, we would not be operating the way the the Russians and the Ukrainians have been operating uh, their helleborne assets, right? Sure. And in another of our top stories, they did go ahead and award the future long-range assault aircraft contract to Bell, which then survived a protest from Sikorsky. Related, across 2023, big story, the growing snowball of F-16s being made available to Ukraine. While the U.S. has yet to join that parade, they've at least gotten out of the way and said, hey, other countries, you're welcome to go ahead and supply these jets. The defense budget is a big story every year. With regard to air power, it's particularly interesting this year in that Congress is pretty willing to permit retirements of older systems that they had resisted for some years. Split feelings in Congress about the administration's decision not to fund the F-35 adaptive engine transition program. We may still have to wait several months to get the final word on those debates. And one other big story that is air power adjacent, at least, the nomination of the Air Force Chief, General C.Q. Brown, to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs if and when nominations start moving through Congress again. Indeed. Uh, and I'm going to go in reverse order so you get two bites uh, of this apple because we've got about five minutes left uh, on the program. So this is lightning round as we go uh, across the piece. What are going to be the big stories that folks need to be paying attention to through the end of the year? Well, continuing the Ukraine stories, those aren't going to end anytime soon. The nomination story you've been following, particularly on the Washington podcast on Fridays, But at some point, that dam will break and we will start to get nominations through again. More broadly, I think the story we talked about at the top, where F-35 production may finally be able to start to meet up with demand, is a big story for all of our allies. And it will further drive the European Fighter Hand-Me-Down Festival that we've seen going on for the last six months. That's very funny. I should also point out, right, the Australians are getting in the act as well because uh, they've got some older F-18s uh, they no longer need, which they are saying that the uh, Ukrainians uh, could have. So that's uh, certainly going to be very interesting to watch. Laura, give us a quick uh, sense on what the two big stories are going to be that you're going to be watching through the end of the year. And then uh, Cervello and then Cavus, and then we've got a wrap. Go ahead. As I said before, what I'm really watching for is how the U.S. Space Force is shifting to, you know, more of a warfighting stance. 
because it's really going to dictate their acquisitions, their launch cadence, et cetera, et cetera, their training, uh, how they're going to manage their workforce. All of that is really going to fall under, well, what is their purpose? Are they support or are they there to actually defend and deter? Now, in addition to that, which I think is actually somewhat equally important, is the uh, SpaceX Starship launch development. Now, SpaceX Starship did have a test launch and it did clear the pad and it cleared the tower, but it didn't make it up into orbit. And, you know, it, it accomplished some things, but it didn't accomplish everything. The thing is, if this actually does work, if it does actually get up into orbit and stay in one piece and then come back down and actually land on planet Earth, it will reduce costs of launch by orders of magnitude. And what's so special about that is that that is technology that is built, designed, developed, et cetera, funded, all of it here in the United States. So that could be a massive game changer. So that's what I'm watching out for. Indeed, uh, utterly fascinating. Cervello, uh, what are you guys tracking uh, and what should folks be paying attention to now uh, through the end of the year, aside from the completely unprecedented and unacceptable hold that Tommy Tuberville obviously has uh, the Alabama uh, Republican senator uh, on all of the military promotions that are now something like 250 senior people are, are waiting. I was uh, at Modern Day Marine last week and heard from uh, the assistant commandant, Eric Smith, who was going to become the next commandant in the Marine Corps. And he was saying, look, I basically you know, remain, you know, ACMAC uh, until I'm confirmed to take the new job. So I will be acting in the role of the commandant uh, once General Berger retires. Anyway, give us a sense on what are some of the other stories you guys are going to be tracking. Well, I'll combine that point with the one that I made uh, when you asked me the last question. And and I think the biggest story that that I will follow over the next six months will be what does uh, Sam Paparo as CNO and Eric Smith as uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps, what does that mean for the Navy Marine Corps team? It is no secret that Admiral Gilday and General Berger did not really see eye to eye on a lot of things and that a lot of the service disagreements, a lot of the budgetary disagreements, a lot of the doctrine disagreements were as a result of their inability to get on the same page. I'm very hopeful that that won't be the case with Paparo and Smith, but you know, as both come into the job and both bring their staffs up to speed, they will certainly shape the Navy and Marine Corps for the next six months and you know beyond for the next three and a half years. Um, I should point out that many people regard, I don't want to speak for General Smith, but a balance between the uh, innovation that General Berger uh, tried to usher in uh, and a great supporter of some of those initiatives, but somebody who also might temper uh, some of the other uh, elements of the plan to, as as several people have said, sort of have a a little bit more of a balanced uh, agenda uh, going forward. Cavus, you started us off. Bring us over the finish line. We've got about a minute or so left. What are the things uh, that you're going to be paying closest attention to? Well, I want to bring it back down to a, a nice piece of kit, and that's the um, the amphibious combat vehicle, the ACV for the U.S. Marine Corps. It still has not deployed. This is a long-awaited replacement of the veteran, uh, you know, legacy AAV amphibious assault vehicle. Uh, people have been training with it for quite some time. There have been at least two Marine Expeditionary units I can think of that people thought were going to be the first to deploy with it. That has not happened. The next deployment that's come into view is that of the 15th 
Mew with the Essex uh, Amphibious Ready Group, which is going to take place sometime this winter. Um, we'll wait and see if that happens. But so far, everybody's gone kind of silent on the a ACV and what's going on about it. Um, even at Modern Day Marine, I was just at, people were pretty dodgy to talk very much about it. So certainly not enthusiastically trying to show it off. So you're, you're starting to ask a lot of questions about, is there something happening here that we're not aware of? There are four variants of it. Um, the fourth is about to be procured, but we still haven't seen it actually deployed. So that's something uh, we're gonna be looking at to see if the ACV ever deploys over the next year. The uh, legendary Amtrak then right. uh, is still going to have a little bit more life in it, even if its genesis was uh, in the late 1960s. Right, exactly. Astonishing. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, terrific program. Great to have the whole team together again and keep up the absolutely terrific uh, work. Good to be here, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago. And everybody make sure you listen to all of these podcasts every week. Indeed. Absolutely. And next week on the Air Power Program. Well, next week, Vago is going to have breaking news, an exclusive look at a new European twin jet lightweight fighter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's keep everybody guessing on that one until next week um, when I'm going to be at the Royal International uh, Air Tattoo, as well as the Royal Air Force's Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference, uh, which is absolutely uh, a must attend on an annual basis. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you all back again soon. And again, to the audience, check out the terrific work everybody on the team is doing every week. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week. <laughs>